Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. Our guest this week is Evelyn Lauer. Evelyn Lauer walks the balance of wife, mother, teacher, writer, and friend with grace and courage. She isn't afraid to look at the truths in our life and uses her training as a journalist to share honest accounts in her writing. A lifelong keeper of journals, she is a fearless creative and a devoted artist to the craft and love of writing in all forms. Evelyn, it is so great to be here with you today. I am so excited that you agreed to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is this is such a great idea. I'm so happy to be a part of it. Excellent. Well, I want to talk to you today a little bit about what writing means for you and how writing has come into your life and the impact that it has on the other plates that you have spinning. You once wrote that you felt like you were five different people at once, living five different lives, a a wife, a mother, a teacher, and a writer. And all these plates seem to spin together for you. But through them all, from what I've read in your writing, is writing and how that influences and impacts you. So what is writing for you? What a... uh thought-provoking question here at the end of my workday. Um, I mean, I guess writing for me has always been there and it's just taken different forms throughout the years. I, I mean, I been writing as long as I remember that I could write. So I started keeping a journal when I was six. I've been keeping a journal since I was six pretty, uh, avidly, uh, so that's uh, over 30 years now. I'm 39. So for 33 years, I've, I've kept, um, you know, journals. So for me, that kind of style of writing, journal writing, ha- has always been a part of my life. And then um, as I got older, I started, you know, new forms of writing and probably got into more creative writing in high school, um, but also was interested in um, journalistic writing and studied journalism in high school and was the editor of my paper. And then that continued into college where I majored in journalism. So, and then I was also taking creative writing classes in, in college at the University of Iowa too. So writing has always been there. For me, it's always like, what kind of writing do I want to do? And what kind of writing do I want to do at a specific moment of my life. And uh, right now I'm, you know, kind of doing a little bit of everything, but, uh, I'm finding myself drawn to the essay form and I'm currently working on a memoir. So I, if I've been writing lots of different forms, um, throughout my life, uh, and it just, it keeps, um, shifting and changing. My MFA is in poetry. So that's, kind of where I'm trained, but I'm um, not really what I'm writing right now. Interesting. And I love that you have both sides of sort of the, the writing coin. I know when I was an undergrad in the writing program, there was always this unspoken tension between the writing students and the journalism students. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about where you see the intersection of those two fields and if you find that as a journalist, your creative writing has a certain impact, or conversely, 
your journalism has an impact on the creative writing that you do. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, and as an undergraduate, I think one semester I was taking, you know, news writing or something, which I, I had to take for my journalism major. I was taking uh, a personal writing class, uh, like an essay writing class, and I was taking a poetry writing class, all three in the same semester. And my um, the teacher who taught me the personal writing, the nonfiction writing class, wrote a comment on one of my papers and said, you should try journalism. And I was like, dude, I, I, I was pissed because I was like, I am a journalist. Like, that's <laughs> what I'm studying. Like, I work for the college newspaper. Like, who are you to tell me I need to take journalism? But um, so I, I do think that all three the poet in me, the journalist in me, and just sort of maybe the prose stylist in me are always at play. And I, and I do think that in terms of, I look at the world through a journalistic lens. If I had to say what lens I often, it's just, I, I see something and I'm like, is there a story there? Is there potential for a story there? Um, and obviously that works really well with poetry too, in terms of the way that you look at the world and you see things. And I think that, you know, all writers have that kind of, all writers see the world differently than maybe someone who doesn't feel, I mean, all artists, let's say, see the, see the world differently than somebody that doesn't feel compelled to create the world into something else, if that makes sense. Mm. Mm-hmm. It does. And I think that's a a beautiful way of of thinking of it, to create the world into something else. I wonder- it's, like, yeah, it's like having a moment. And sometimes that's why I find a hard, I have a hard time living in the moment because I'm constantly um, analyzing it and thinking of what else it could be. Like sometimes I catch myself like I'm in the middle of a moment with my kids who are when I'm the most present and I'll be wondering, you know, will this show up at an essay or could I use this for a poem? I just think it's a hard way to live, but I can't get around it. Well, I think in some ways it's good for our creativity, if nothing else, <laughs> to be yeah. constantly thinking of these things, to be noticing. I, um, I've been thinking a lot myself on the power of memory and what is memory and how do we, how do we create memory? And mm-hmm. as writers, and for me as a creative nonfiction writer, memory is where my writing comes from. I don't necessarily write an essay today about something I did this morning mm-hmm. unless it was particularly profound. But instead, today I might sit down and write about a morning that happened 10 years ago and in that have to rely heavily on the analysis I did in that moment 10 years ago, taking in the sights and the sounds and the smells and then recalling them back into this moment as I'm writing. You are also a teacher, Mm-hmm. and you teach both journalism and English. And I'm curious how 
finding that confluence in yourself of journalist and creative writer then translates to your students and what impact they have on you thinking about and seeing new ways of writing? Yeah, I mean, I the, the sort of play with journalism for me is, um, you know, I... As I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm working on a memoir. And the hardest thing for me um, in working on that was letting go of some of the details. Because I'm trained as a reporter to always get the facts right. Like, what, and this goes back to your idea of memory. For example, in the opening chapter of my book, it's set on a dance floor. And do I know the exact song that was playing the moment I met this man that the book is about? No. Do I have an idea of a, of a, obviously I know the time and the place of what songs might have been playing. Absolutely. But, um, to, to not have that detail, right. Because memory fails us really bothers me. Um, but it doesn't really matter to the reader as long as obviously the, there's a, you know, emotional kind of connection to it, but that as you're talking about memory and senses and, that sort of, I kept track of certain things very journalistically. Like I have ridiculous calendars kept from my freshman year of college where I wrote down everything I drank that night. So I can tell you on March 15th, I was drinking, um, you know, a, uh, slow screw or something, whatever, because I have it written down. I have no idea why, but I did probably because of the journalist in me, but, um, that's not really what memoir and memory is. So that's been kind of an interesting process for me. And then now the idea of then teaching writers, young writers, how to be journalists, but also be creative. It's hard because I, I teach like an intro to journalism class and I teach kids how to write news and how to be objective or, and how to be objective and how to tell both sides of the story. But then I also teach narrative form where students can be more creative and students can um, really have to focus on the skills of observation. And what I find is that my students are either really good at one or the other. So I have students who can who can write news and sort of take all voice out of their writing and can kind of just sort of present a situation and then other students that have a really hard time with that who want to like flower it with adjectives but they write on like for example feature stories or narrative stories much better because they're able to tell a story but I really think that all students unfortunately really struggle with the concept of how to tell a story because school has beaten that out of them Mm -hmm. um, because they're so forced to writing formulae Says about um, of mice of men, or you know, to kill a mockingbird or whatever, mm-hmm. and so they they spit back what the teacher wants to. So when they're asked to have any sort of creative freedom, they really struggle with that. So that's one of the first things that I have to beat out of them. I tell them the first day of class that they have to um, forget about everything they've learned from at this from this point in English class, because I'm not you're not writing a five paragraph essay for me. Um, and so in terms of how they've informed me, I mean, I've had some fabulous writers over the years who 
young writers who make me wish I was as good as they were at 18. You know, like I think of, I have my writing samples from when I was 18 and they're nowhere near as good as some of my students. So I think to start at 18 with that kind of talent, like that's pretty incredible. Like, you know, I, I'm almost jealous in a way. And those are the kids that I really, even after they leave me, even after they graduate, keep in touch and, um, in terms of watching their own careers as young writers grow. I don't know if I've answered your question there, but it's perfect. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So that, that makes me wonder then what is the best advice you've ever received? Well, I think it's the same advice that I give, um, that if you want to be a writer, you've got to write every day. And Actually, one of my former students texted me a couple weeks ago. She's at the University of Iowa. She's a freshman. And she said, I want to, if I want to write every day, but I want it to be more than a journal entry, what do I write? And, <laughs> you know, I think that we grow up thinking, oh, I can only write if I have, you know, inspiration or something strikes me or I'm like, Oh, something happens to me and I want to write a poem. But the more, and I, I sort of was like that too. Um, the more that I would go in and out of waves of writing regularly in my twenties. Um, but I've learned now in my thirties and sort of taking myself more seriously as a writer, that writing is work. Like you've got to sit down in front of your computer or your notepad or however you write and you've got to show up and you have, I think for me, it really helped. And this is what I told her. It helps to have a project. Like until I started the idea for my book came to me and I started working my book three years ago. Um, having that, um, project has changed so many, so many ways in a short period of time. But when I showed show up to write every day, that's what I'm working on. And it gives me some sort of focus. So if you have to create a project for yourself, a short story, a collection of poems, you know, a series of essays, whatever, I think that that helps. But you, you, have, to, you have to put in the time. I don't think if you really want to take writing seriously, um, you know, you can be like, well, I kind of, you know, I write here and I write there, or I write whatever um, inspiration strikes. What I've learned is a lot of writing is about, um, hard work and tenacity. I would say just pushing through the rejection, pushing through the voices in your head, pushing through, you know, agents turning you down or whatever. You just have to keep going. That's funny. You mentioned that. I, I absolutely agree that half of writing is showing up Mm -hmm. at least half. Mm -hmm. Um, and you mentioned, you know, overcoming and persevering. And the last thing you mentioned was agents turning you down. And I, I'm curious because you wrote very honestly about the experience of working with an agent for several months who then decided not to sign you. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, having a few months away from that initial rejection, how how has that impacted the writing that you're doing on your current project of your memoir and on the rest of your writing? Well, I mean, 
as I wrote in the piece that you're referring to, I mean, it was heartbreaking. I, I felt like a boyfriend broke up with me. But um, because there was hope there that then, you know, was d- diminished. But after, yes, the initial sort of, uh, you know, crying in your room and if I had to give the analogy of how I felt in high school, my boyfriend did break up with me, you know, after the initial days of wanting to just hole up in a room and listen to Pearl Jam on replay. Um, I, I got over the breakup and I just got back to work. Um, I, uh, one of the things I, I had been working on with the memoir was I was trying to sell it or find an agent for it on proposal, which, um, you know, people who write memoir will tell you, give you different advice. That's the one thing about memoir is there's not a clear answer. Um, and so some, I got some advice, um, from some writers that I admire who said, try and sell it on proposal. And that just didn't work for me. And an agent very early on, uh, who showed interest in the project said, this isn't going to sell on proposal, finish the book and send it to me. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I mean, what, what, what eventually what I came to was I can't keep working. I spent almost a year working on a proposal to a book that I wasn't writing. And so I just said, I've got to finish the book. I don't care if I get an agent, I have to show up every day. I've got to finish this book and get it done as fast as I can. So I finished a draft of it in January and I'm working through, um, working with an editing company right now, you know, to help, help me polish it up and maybe do some restructuring before I look for agents again. Um, but that, I mean, I think it's really easy. A lot of people give up, right? So they, an agent rejects them or a hundred agents reject them and say, this project sucks or I suck and I'm moving on to the next thing. And I just said, I've got to finish this project um, for myself. And whatever happens with it after that um, happens. And so that was a big step for me, was actually getting 82,000 words done in in a form that I was like, I could say, this is a book. I wrote a book. I wrote Mm -hmm. a book. Like, it still got work, but I wrote a book. The other thing that happened was... I got the idea for, I, I've, it's kind of been in my mind, but the idea for my second book formulated, and I've been sort of, as this pro- one project sort of, not really comes to a close, but comes to a little um, moment of pause here. I'm, you know, got some ideas going, and I've been working on a second book. And so I think I've just finally decided I'm a writer, I'm going to take myself seriously. I'm not going to wait for an agent to, or a book sell or, you know, sell my book or whatever for someone to say, you are a writer. I'm just mm-hmm. going to start treating myself that way and see what happens and hopefully good things will follow. Absolutely. That actually reminds me of a Joan Didion quote. Seems on the surface to not necessarily be related, but I think... It talks a lot about, in my experience of your work, the writing through the hard stories and pushing through and perseverance and also showing up as a writer and claiming that. And Didion writes, you have to pick the places you don't want to walk away from. And I'm reminded of that because I'm hearing you say, I'm not willing to walk away from being a writer 
this mm-hmm. is who I am. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, a powerful statement to make because particularly as women and as writers, we don't always claim that space. We don't always agree to take up the space that our writing requires. And whether that means we get up an extra hour before everybody else and we sit down to write then, or whether it means we stay up late or write in the car, however that is, we have to decide, I'm not willing to step away from this. This is part of me. And so I love that that is sort of the the blossoming into this next journey of showing up and saying, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. Yeah. I really, I really love that quote and I really love the the context that you're putting it in here because, um, not, it's also about not walking away from the stories that are inside of us. And the story of my memoir has been percolating since I was 19 and it's still there, which means to me, it's a story that's worth telling. It's not an idea that sort of came to me or an experience that came to me and then went away. It, it's, it's a story. It's one of those things. And anyone that's a writer knows, knows this is that idea that you have to write the story that you were meant to write, like the story that you were meant to tell. Mm -hmm. And I feel that, you know, this is my story. And, and that when you show up, when I show up to the page, this is the story that comes out. And I've faced, you know, criticism and multiple times of my life where people don't want this story told or think it shouldn't be told because I'm writing about um, another man and I'm married and I have kids and I should be faithful to them or whatever. And, and I want to say, okay, yeah. Um, but this is my reality. I think this is other people's reality and, um, my husband's okay with it. So mind your own business, you know, it's just kind of, it's, it's kind of like people like want to judge women a lot. I don't think that if a man was writing this story, I wonder if he would get the same criticism. I guess that's what I'm saying. And that's mm. if if a man was writing about a former lover and he was married and had kids, would he get the same amount of like heat that some people are, give me? Or would they ask him the question, what does your wife think about it? You know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I just... It's something that I think about a lot because of the subject that I write about. And um, that's always the go-to question. What does your husband think about the book? You know? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that it's really important you bring that up because it's true. We we can guess and wonder and we can hope that a man writing about this same subject would be asked the same questions. But... I think most of us know that that's pretty unlikely. And uh, you've written at times about the challenge of writing about another man and have shared on your blog the ways that, you know, you've had those hard conversations with your husband. And I, for me, I appreciate that transparency because in some ways it's saying, you know, 
yes, I have thought about this. And yes, I, I actually care about this. And at the same time, here's the truth of it. And it's none of your business. You don't need to know anymore. Right. Um, but I think that's really powerful. And I, I want to uh, share with listeners now, I'd love it if you could read the prologue to your memoir uh, and tell us then a little bit about what that piece means for you. Okay. So this book is um, called right now, uh, Everyone After You, and uh, this is the beginning of it. There was always an after, always that moment when I was certain something would follow. After we met, became after we fell in love, became after we broke up, became after we got back together. After repeated. After made me believe in a future. Happily ever after and all that bullshit. That kind of after. The last time I saw him, it was August, the limbo month. Not quite summer, not quite fall. When sunflowers bloom and sidewalks hold on to heat like I should have held on to him. We were sweaty the seconds after we both came, his body on top of mine like we were together again, like we might be together forever. The bare window giving way to the almost full moon and the blue in his eyes like smoothed over stones found along a sandy shore. I tried to tell him then that I still loved him, that I always loved him, that I wondered almost daily, no, at least five times a day, if I would ever love anyone as much as I loved him that I didn't know if it was possible to live in this world without him, and yet there I was, living without him, until he showed up at 3 a.m. outside my door. Was I not supposed to let him in? Was I supposed to say no? I was alone. He was there. Come on up, I said. Hello, he said. It was all we needed to say. His lips fell into mine like a belly flat body into a pool with one splat, and there we were, kissing again in my apartment, wood floor underneath our feet. He lifted me up as he used to do, and my legs found their place around him, falling back into the routine of us. How long had it been? At least a year. But every time I was with him, it was simultaneously like the first and last time, both surprising and familiar, both an escape from my reality and home. Yes, it was like coming home each time, every time. And I wanted to say, let's build a home together, you and me, this time. But I didn't. I wanted to hold him inside of me and never let go. I wanted to tell him I loved him, but the words wouldn't come out. The words were somewhere deep inside me, buried under bruises and bones and blood. He would have to cut me open to tear them out of me. Instead, I kept kissing, and he kept kissing, and we fell into bed, and we fucked like we needed it to breathe. I've missed you, he said. These were always his words, and while I knew he meant them, I wasn't sure I could trust them. He couldn't forgive me. I couldn't trust him. Love was not enough. I grabbed the back of his head. Do that again, he said. I lay on top of him and laughed. What, he said. Us, I said. It was all I could say. What about us? everything. Lauer, stop trying to be poetic. If there's something you want to say, just say it. I looked into his blue eyes. It was like peering into a bottomless ocean, deep and dark, a sadness I wanted to save. Never mind. 
I remembered the lyrics we listened to in college. There are many things I would like to say to you, but I don't know how. It's how I felt always. I held the words in like a sponge holds water. When it came to will, I couldn't speak. I could only act. I would regret this later. My silence would haunt me on nights when I wondered, what if? What if I had told you how I felt? What then? I rolled off of him as my eyes moved to the white ceiling, black like the sky, dreaming of constellations I once knew the names of. A second later, he was snoring next to me. The next morning, he was all business as usual. It was good to see you again, he said, pulling up his jeans. He started to walk down the stairs. He started to leave me. But as I stood in the doorway, trying to muster the words to say goodbye, he turned back and said, I love you. It had been at least seven years since he said those words. Not since he did love me and I loved him. Not since I couldn't love him anymore. Not since love ruined us. I was half naked by the door, wearing only an oversized Cubs t-shirt. He said, I love you. He said those words, then left, as if he would be back as if he was just running around the corner to grab coffee. Honey, I'll be right back. I love you. Like that. Just fucking like that. I let him leave. I didn't run to him. I didn't say I love you too. I stood there and maybe said, yeah, I'll see ya. I said something stupid I know because I didn't say I love you, because I didn't pull him into an embrace. Instead, I let him go. I let him go because there was always an after. There always had been. There always would be. There was no way I could have known, not in that moment by the staircase covered in emerald green carpet, that each step he took away that morning was a step away from me forever. How was I supposed to know? Hmm. Thank you. When you think about writing this story, what is, what is the most important thing for you to convey? with this memoir that sometimes that the people that we love the most or have loved the most in our past, um, are not, not the people that we're meant to spend the rest of our lives with, that they're not the best people for us, that they never have been, even though we we get hung up on them and we have a hard time getting over them. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And that it's okay you know, I, I think um, I, I write, I've written about this, um, this subject in different sort of essays that I've written, mostly for the Huffington Post. And I'll have women email me and tell me their entire life love stories, right? And how they're wondering, how do you get over him? Or how, how do you move on? Because I can't get over this guy. And whatever stage of their life that they're on, some women are single, some women are have been married for years and still hung up on somebody else. And I mean, I think that there's so much, um, guilt put on women specifically that once they get married and especially once they become mothers that they're supposed to like not have a past anymore. And there's this expectation that, um, you know, your story before you became a mother, before you became a wife is not valid. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to do with this book is say that our pasts are part of us. They're a big part of us and they turn us into the people that we become and the people that later other people fall in love with. We become the 
the women that become mothers and that I can have had this um, really back and forth roller coaster of a relationship and it formed me but and uh, shaped me in ways that I'm never going to be able to 100% get over and that that's okay and that I can hold a part of him and who we used to be inside of me I used to think that I had to completely kick him out of me and that was like the only way that I was going to get over him and I tr- tried in many different ways and part of the book of course there's a cathar- you know did you write the book to get over him there's sure that's part of part of it but it's not it might have started that way, but it's not what it turned into. And what I learned in the process of it was that I'm never going to kick him out of me. Mm-hmm. He's he's always going to be there, even if he's just, like, hanging by a thread to my extra rib is what I like to say because I have an extra rib. And if he's there, like, you know, wag- wagging his flag, reminding me that he's he's there, he's there. But he's just he's not everything mm-hmm. he used to be and it's kind of being okay with that and, and thanking him for what he gave me, but more importantly, thanking him for what he didn't give me. And therefore I was able to become someone more than him. Mm. And, 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 have people in my life that were better for me long-term. Hmm. Definitely. This reminds me of, I remember a post you published back in December uh, when you were writing about a little bit about your memoir and a little bit about your life as it is now. And there was a, a section that really stood out for me. You wrote, but this holiday season, I'm reminded that Conversely, this love was not great because it never made it to the traditions. The memories that matter, the long haul of life that keeps coming back day after day, year after year. The love that shows up, the love that stays, the love that watches in awe with me each Christmas morning as my two sons open presents under a glow of white lights, lights that no longer Remind me of him. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that, um, I think that is a powerful paragraph because it's a, it's such a hard place to get to. Mm-hmm. And there will always be moments where someone returns to us in the present who has been long lost in our memory and we can't always anticipate them. But I think remembering how they shaped us and who they were and how that made us who we are, but not all that we are. Right. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. And, and I think too, that the book, the process of, of, of writing a book like this um, really made me see that. I mean, and about 
And I don't know if I would have gotten there without the book. And which is, is a bad answer in a way, because I don't want to say to women, you need to write a book about him in order to let him go. But Mm -hmm. for me, I needed to write a book about him because I'm a writer, because I was haunted, right, by this story and his, his presence in my life, even as a married woman, even as a mother. And, you know, this is obviously on the book, but he came back like he, it didn't, it wasn't just like, this is this guy that was this small part of my life. He tried to come back while I was married and had kids. And so it's wrestling with that notion of you're happy with your husband and you're you're happy, you know, as happy as you can be with, with young motherhood. However, what do you do when the person you always like the love of your life or the person that you always sort of hoped, um, you know, would be the one like shows up mm-hmm. and what do you do? And be- because it's a memoir and not a, uh, you know, I could write a, a fiction book in which like him and I go living off in the sunset together, but that's not reality. I don't, I think the reality for most women, most women, sure, there's stories and there's statistics who will say, yeah, you know, will have the affair, does it, and maybe breaks up their marriage, maybe not. But I think most women um, are curious about that person and especially, you know, years into a marriage, but not every woman is going to act on it the same way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm telling my story of how I acted on it, the effects of that. Um, and ultimately where I arrived at the end of this with my relationship with him and how I came to terms with all that, um, with my marriage. I mean, I, I think it's totally, totally naive and unrealistic for people to think once you get married, you no longer harbor feelings for anybody else. Yes. Whether that's the guy on the street that, you know, is really attractive and you imagine, you know, sleeping with him or it's someone from your past. I, it, I'm just, it, but especially when it comes to women, I think we get um, vilified if we uh, express any sort of um, thoughts of other people from our, you know, past or otherwise. Yeah. So I guess I'm trying to make women feel less guilty about those thoughts and where you go with them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's important. I think it's important for us to see that we're not alone when we struggle with those things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I want to invite you to share a piece of wisdom, something that you've learned from years of journaling and being a poet and being a journalist, uh, what, something that you can give to the listeners of this podcast. Hmm. Um, I would say this, that, and this is also a, um, a theme that comes out in my book, and you probably heard in the prologue, that you should probably tell people how you feel. 
And I spent so much of my time worrying about what people think or, or, um, what, uh, what it might do to my relationship, to be honest, that one thing I'm learning is that it's really important to, uh, communicate how you're really feeling inside with whoever your partner is. Mm. Absolutely. Well, Evelyn, it's been so great to sit and talk with you today. I've loved sharing this with you and listening to your story and hearing more about the memoir that you're working on. If people want to learn more about your writing, they can find you at evelynalauer.com and also on the Huffington Post. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This was this was great and got me to think about my book and about writing and life. So it's always time well spent. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. You have been listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. For more information about this and all of our episodes, please visit in-her-room.com. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Thank you for listening.